Jeremiah chapter 50, beginning in verse 21. Go up against the land of Meratim, against it, and against the inhabitants of Pekod. Waste and utterly destroy them, says the Lord, and do according to all that I've commanded you. A sound of battle is in the land and of great destruction. How the manner of the whole earth has been cut apart and broken. How Babylon has become a desolation among the nations. I have laid a snare for you. You have indeed been trapped, O Babylon, and you were not aware you have been found and also caught because you have contended against the Lord. The Lord has opened his armory and has brought out the weapons of his indignation. For this is the work of the Lord God of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. Come against her from the farthest border, open her storehouses, cast her up as heaps of ruins and destroy her utterly. Let nothing of her be left. Slay all her bulls. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them for their day has come. The time of their punishment. Jeremiah continues his prophecy against Babylon. And you'll remember, beginning in chapter 49, Babylon is judged for its sin. It's judged for its rebellion. It's judged for its pride. It's judged for its brutality. And these sins motivated Babylon to conquer her neighbors and subjugate them and hold them in captivity. And remember that the book of Genesis tells the story of the Tower of Babel and the confounding of the languages in Genesis chapter 11, verse 9. And so in the book of Genesis, as early as the book of Genesis, it came to represent the world system that's been established by man in defiance of God. And so from the very beginning of the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, Babylon becomes a type. And a picture of a world system that stands in opposition to the person of God, to the plan of God, to the promises of God, to the Messiah of God. And you'll remember that the Babylonians weren't content to simply subjugate their neighbors. They wanted to eradicate their language and their culture and incorporate them into what it considered the first culture. And so Babylon would take people from Judah and Jerusalem, from Assyria to the north, from Elam, all of the little countries that we've talked about that that they incorporated in their empire. They would drag them back to Babylon. They would teach them their language, their culture and their idolatry. And if the captivity in Babylon caused the Jews to do any single thing, it caused them to fully, finally And forever give up idolatry. So Babylon represents what's worst in human government. It's a symbol of darkness and oppression. And earlier in the chapter, we also discovered that God would execute judgment in part to provide a means of escape for freedom for the people of Judah to return to the land in verses 4 through 23. And now Jeremiah will continue to pronounce judgment in a country committed 
to defying the Lord. And so, again, the judgment is given in part to prove God's identity as the redeemer of the people. We'll see that in verses 33 through 47. And so the Lord speaks to Babylon in verses 11 through 13, to the invading armies in verses 14 through 16. He speaks to the Jews in verses 20 through 27. And now the Lord will speak to the invaders in verses 21 through 27. In what way? Oddly enough, God will speak to the people of Persia and invite them To be the instrument in which he is going to use to judge them. And oddly enough, we're left with the impression that God himself is in charge of the Babylonian invasion. And so here is the idea that's given in the chapter. The Lord is issuing orders concerning his judgment and they are to be followed to the letter. Babylon used to be the rod that God used in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, to punish Judah and Jerusalem, but now it's going to be shattered. The hammer that hammered the nations will itself explode. Babylon will be caught in God's trap and destroyed by God's weapons. The cream of the crop of Babylon, the finest of their youth, will be destroyed like a slaughter of oxen. And the Lord will redeem his people. He will free them and liberate them. And this becomes an important point for each and every one of you. Because guess what? Bondage falls typically into two categories. The kind of bondage that you could free yourself from. And the kind of bondage that you can't free yourself from what is the kind of bondage that you might be able to free yourself from well you might be able to overcome an addiction you might be able to quit smoking you might be able to stop drinking you might be able to stop some pernicious wicked thing that you're doing and you may be able to do things differently than you did in the past but there's something that i can never change and there's something that you can never change and that's sin inside of your heart You can never wake up on any given morning and purpose in your heart that you'll never sin again. That you'll be free from the bondage and the slavery of sin. And so guess what? The Bible says that we need a redeemer. Jesus Christ, the Lord. And so the prophecy will take the form of poetry and the poem will begin with a play on words and then it will follow with a series of idioms, figures of speech, a broken hammer, a snare, an armory, a granary, a slaughterhouse. And the poet convinces the reader that this isn't some blind, indignant rage or revenge. This isn't God sitting up in heaven and that he is going to pronounce judgment on the rebellion of a country. No, this is God acting justly and appropriately according to his nature and according to his character because of wickedness. Look again in verse 21. It says, go up against the land of Meratim, against it. And then against the inhabitants of Pekod, waste and utterly destroy them, says the Lord, and do according to all that I have commanded you. Now, the word Meratayim means rebellion. 
but it means double rebellion. We might even say it could be translated bitter and bitter again, rebel and rebel again. It's a pun on an Akkadian word, Maratum, which refers to the marshy region where the Tigris and the Euphrates merge near the Persian Gulf. In other words, part of the Babylonian Empire is this place where the two rivers meet. And if you can imagine, if you've ever seen the Louisiana Swamp, the Louisiana Swamp is like a gigantic marsh where there's trees growing out of the swamp. And so it's like a swamp land, if you will. And Mat Maratim was the land of the bitter river. And the word Pekod is the Hebrew word punishment. But it's, again, a play on words because it's also a region in the southeastern Mesopotamian territory of Babylon. And so when the Lord says, go up against this land, double rebellion, go up against this place, punishment, waste and utterly destroy them and do according to all that I have commanded you. It sets the stage for this. That wickedness and rebellion must be punished. That's the idea And then it says a sound of battle is in the land and of great destruction. The implication being that when the Persian army will come and devastate Babylon, you can hear it for miles and miles and miles. Verse 23, how the hammer of the whole earth has been cut apart and broken, how Babylon has become a desolation among the nations. I have laid a snare for you. So here's the idea. The Lord speaks to his commander. Assyria is a rod or a hammer, a tool against Israel. And you can look at Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 9. Now God's chosen commander, first of all, Cyrus, later Darius, and then even later Alexander, will be his hammer and he will use the invading armies to crush Babylon. By the way, in history, other military leaders have been called the hammer. During the Jewish revolt, there was, against the Greeks, there was a man named Judas Maccabeus. He was also called Judas the Hammer. Charles Martel of France was called the Hammer. Edward I was called the Hammer of Scotland. And of course, who can forget M.C. Hammer? Who, I don't know why he was called the Hammer, because he had nothing to do with Well, you get it. But here's part of the point. What God has used in the past, he will now use in the present as the point of punishment. And he gives the reason, verse 24, you have indeed been trapped, O Babylon, and you were not aware you have been found and also caught because you have contended against the Lord. The Lord likens himself to a trapper. He sets a snare. The Greek historian Herodotus pictures a complete surprise by the Babylonians when they're overtaken by Cyrus and then later by Darius. Because according to Herodotus, they literally took the river, which was alongside of, if you can imagine, Babylon was on a plain next to the Euphrates River. And in this plain, you can see the river that goes by and you see the bridge into the city. And they literally diverted the water 
that, w- that ran next to the city and they literally went underneath the wall and captured the city basically without ever firing a shot. So they're taken by surprise. Verse 25, the Lord has opened his armory and has brought out the weapons of his indignation. For this is the work of the Lord God of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. So not only is he like a trapper, he's like an army commander in charge of the armory, using the weapons of his wrath for the work of the Lord against Babylon. In other words, he is going to use all of the resources at his disposal In order to accomplish his will. Why is, again, this important to you? Because people who are trapped by sin will often think that God won't judge them. Maybe you've even had a conversation with the Lord. Well, God, you know that I'm human. You understand that I'm just a human being. Well, God does understand that you're just a human being, but God also understands that wickedness and unrighteousness has to be dealt with. And this is why God sends a Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. And so, in verse 26 it says, Come against her from the farthest border, open her storehouses, cast her up as heaps of ruins, and destroy her utterly. Let nothing be left of her. The word storehouses may mean granaries or cattle or stalls. If that's the case, then the following verse would make would would read something like slaughter the whole herd, cows and bulls alike. And so when he says come against her from the farthest border, the Lord invites the armies of Persia and all of the people who are working allies with Persia to participate, if you will, in the war against Babylon. And so, even though the city loomed in a plain, and it, and it was next to a river. It wasn't near a great mountaintop. When the armies would come and they would destroy it and level it, it would look like a smoking volcano, like a burnt mountain. Heaps of ruins describes this pile of rubble that is burning under um, the flame of its of its own Judgment, And then in verse 27, it says, slay all her bulls, let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them, for their day has come, the time of their punishment. So who are the the bulls? Well, some scholars have suggested, well, when it says slay all all the bulls, it means cut off the food supply. But it could mean something more. It, It could mean the source of food. It could mean the best and the brightest that the country has to offer. If that's the case, then it means the young. If it's the case of of machinery or technology, because they would use the bulls to to plow the fields, it could be the source of the strength of strength. So is it food? Is it young? Is it the source of strength? Is it the armies of Babylon? I'm going to suggest to you that it probably means all of those things. In other words, God is going to completely and totally humiliate Babylon. And that's what we see In verse 28. And so we continue. Look what it says in verse 28. The voice of those who flee and escape from the land of Babylon. 
declares in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of his temple. Now, here's the, the, the poem has changed and the voice has changed and the audience has changed. The voice of those who flee and escape from the land of Babylon. Who is this? These are the captives. These are the exiles. They leave Babylon. They return to Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem and Judah. The vengeance of the Lord, our God, the vengeance of the people. Here's the idea. The people have escaped Babylon. They're running for their lives. They make the the 400 plus mile trek across the desert. They cross over the Jordan. They eventually find themselves where home is. The passage implies the return to, to, to Zion. And then they issue their report, the fall of Babylon. Babylon has fallen. Babylon is ruined. And by the way, the Babylonian sins were numerous. But there is an explicit statement for another reason for their punishment. Look what it says. The vengeance of the Lord our God in verse 28. The vengeance of his temple. Babylon has done a lot of things really wrong. Really wicked. Really evil. But one of the things they did was they destroyed the temple. In Jerusalem. The passage implies that the Babylonians had burned God's temple. And now God was going to burn them. Does that shock you? Does it surprise you that God takes these things seriously? And when he says the vengeance of his temple, the vengeance of the Lord. Some of you are familiar with Romans chapter 12, verse 19, where Paul says, give place to wrath. You may not know what that means. But what it means is Paul is inviting the Roman reader to believe that there is such a thing as judgment. And that there is such a thing as God's wrath. And that there is a time when God takes the scales of human history and he balances them. And that everything that has been wrong will one day be made right. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, in the New Living Translation, it says, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Our attitude as Christians, our attitude as Christians is (laughs) we trust the Lord. We trust the Lord that he is going to right every wrong, that he is going to take every wicked thing and he is going to make it right. In other words, the the position of the Christian is, hey, guess what? Vengeance isn't a, a part of our nature and it isn't a part of our vocabulary. And so payback should be two words that you need to remove from your vocabulary and that I need to remove from my vocabulary. I wish I could say to you that I practice this with Christian perfection and the answer would be not really. But I'm working on it. But there is a sense of indignation that takes place inside of my heart when I see that a a little girl has been abducted and we can't find her. There's something inside of my heart that breaks when I hear about children who are molested, who have been taken advantage of. 
There's something inside of my heart when I think about the greed and the materialism and the hypocrisy that marks so much of our culture. But the Lord says, vengeance is mine. I'm going to repay. It's not your job to make it right. It's not my job to make it right. The Bible says that it's God's job to make it right. And so the first command was to declare among the nations. Now the Lord calls for the archers. Look at verse 29. Call together the archers against Babylon. All you who bend the bow and camp around it all around. Let none of them escape. Repay her according to her work. According to all that she has done due to her. For she has been proud against the Lord. Against the Holy One of Israel. Earlier, Jeremiah said, make sure everyone understands what's going to happen concerning this prophecy. Now the command is to the archers. And again, we might think of the archers as these precise shooters. We might even think of this order, shoot to kill. That's how we could translate it in our culture. All you who bend the bow and camp around. The idea being sharpshooters line up. When people start to run, mow them down. And you might be thinking, that's awful. That's horrible. That's terrible. But you misunderstand. Look what it says at the end of the verse. Against the Holy One of Israel. You know, we live in a culture and a society that elevates... Compassion, and well, we should, but we denigrate the holiness of God. I'm going to ask you a question that you may not have the answer to. How holy is God? Do you even understand the meaning of that? When the Bible uses the term the Holy One of Israel, it's the radical understanding that God is pure. And perfect. He is pure and perfect in every way, in every moral way, in every spiritual way, in every way. The Lord God is the express. What's the word I'm looking for? If we were to 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 try and boil God down to his ultimate substance, we know that the Bible says that he is love. But there's a reason why the angels in heaven fly around going, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He is utterly other. He is completely pure. And so sin is an offense. It's a profound offense. And look what it says. For she has been proud against the Lord. And so the idea when he says terminate with extreme prejudice. And remember, Jeremiah has likened the Lord to a trapper, setting a snare, a commander, unleashing an army. But now he likens the Lord to a judge who will repay Babylon for all of her wicked deeds. I think you would understand it a little bit better if you're in the courtroom and you think about the man who has kidnapped the child and the judge issues a sentence. You know, there used to be a time when 
the, the most heinous crime that you could commit was murder. The second most heinous crime that you could commit was kidnapping. Did you, do you realize that there was a time in culture when if you kidnapped a child, you could receive capital punishment? And see, that makes sense to most of you. Most of you understand the wickedness of taking a child and abducting her. Most of you understand the wickedness of a serial killer who mutilates people. You understand the wickedness of people who do wicked things and wicked crimes. And you would be the first in the courtroom to say, okay, all in favor of death, raise your hand. And most of you would go, yes, because of the wickedness. That doesn't mean that there's not a trial. and That doesn't mean that there's a process. And here's part of the point. That we sometimes forget that when God issues a judgment, he doesn't do it based on feelings or sentiments that you have. He issues a judgment based on the perfection of his righteousness and the perfection of his holiness. Why is this important to each and every one of you? Because you might forget that God's standard is perfection. Righteousness and holiness. And it's supposed to bring you to the place where you confess. I'm not righteous. I'm not holy. I'm not perfect. I'm imperfect. And using that standard, the same standard of the, for she has been proud against the Lord. If we use the same standard to evaluate ourselves and judge ourselves, then we have to plead guilty. So what can we do? No wonder the New Testament writer says, if any of us had to stand before God, who would be able to ex- to stand the scrutiny? But what a Christian gets to do is say, guilty. But um, the Bible says that if I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, that he's taken my sin and he has taken my guilt and he has taken my blame and he has taken my punishment. You see, this is the reason why Christianity and Jesus is such an important part of the message, even at this particular point. Now, again. In verse 30, look what it says. Therefore, her young men shall fall in the streets and all her men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord. Babylon faces judgment because she's defied the Lord, abused the people of God, imprisoned them, held them captive. So her soldiers will die in the streets and be sentenced forever. But note in verse 30 that phrase in that day. What day? In the day of judgment. There's a day of judgment that takes place historically with Cyrus, Darius, and with Alexander the Great. But what if I told you that there's going to come another day and another battle in the Middle East where the nations will gather and young men will be killed and silenced forever? Because you see, human rebellion won't end in your lifetime. But it's going to continue into the future and into the ultimate day of judgment. Look what it says in verse 31. Behold, 
And you should, if you're one of those people who underline your Bible, if you're one of those people who make a star or a notation, look at verse 31. Behold, I am against you, O most haughty one, says the Lord God of hosts, for your day has come, the time I will punish you. I want to allow that verse to soak in for just a moment. I want you to be terrified just for a moment. Why? It's October. It's the time to be terrified. No, that's not why. I want you to think about the text. Behold, I am against you, O most haughty one. For your day has come, the time that I will punish you. Babylon is pride. That's what the word haughty means. It means full of pride. As a matter of fact, Babylon in the text is personified as pride. Do you understand when I use the term personified? Have you ever heard the song, luck be a lady to me? Luck be a lady. Now, is luck a lady? Not really. When you see the Statue of Liberty and you call her Lady Liberty. Does that mean liberty is a lady? No. Does this mean that Babylon is in fact pride? In a very real sense, the answer is yes. They're the personification of of pride. As a matter of fact, some Bible writers have even translated this text, Sir Pride. My quarrel is with your arrogance, J.B. Phillips says. Queen insolence, Moffat. So I want you to think about this. What would cause God to take such an active stand of opposition? Again, the clue is given in the sentence. Oh, most haughty one. We know what the New Testament and the Old Testament says. God resists the proud. God gives grace to the humble. Arrogance and pride are those twin Invitations to judgment. The book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 5. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. C.S. Lewis wrote, pride always means enmity. It's enmity. In other words, this is accusation, arrogance. This, do you know what pride is? It is a declaration of war against God. That's what it is. It's a declaration of war against God. C.S. Lewis again writes, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete Anti-God state of mind. And I like that because that's the perfect definition of pride. Anti-God. In your mind. The agnostic, the atheist. Who sees God as a useful fiction. So to scare people into submission. Are really standing in opposition to God. And by the way, when, the, when it says, behold, I am against you. Do you realize I came up with a little list of things that God hates? Look at what's at the top of the list. 
Homosexual acts, Leviticus 18.22. Bestiality, Leviticus 18.23. Idols and the materials used to make the idols, Deuteronomy 7.25. Blemished sacrifices, worshiping the sun, moon, stars. According to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, God hates astrology. God hates divination, Deuteronomy 18.10. God hates enchanters, Deuteronomy 18.10. God hates witches, Deuteronomy 18.10. And you might be thinking, well, what's wrong with witches? Remember what a witch is in the Bible. A witch is a person who alters reality in order to satisfy themselves. Necromancers, Deuteronomy 18.11. Those are people who call up the dead. Transvesticism, Deuteronomy 22.5. When you hire a prostitute, Deuteronomy 23.18. Remarriage to a former wife after she's been married to another man, Deuteronomy 24.4. Dishonest scales, Deuteronomy 25.13. Those who work iniquity, Psalm 5.5. The wicked, Psalm 11.5. Those who love violence, Psalm 11.5. The perverse, Proverbs 3.32. A proud look, Proverbs 6.16. A lying tongue, Proverbs 6.17. Hands that shed innocent blood, Proverbs 6.17. A heart that devises wicked imagination. That means people who plot to do that which is wicked and they're thinking it in their mind. And for the person who says, it doesn't really matter if you're just thinking it right. Wrong. Lying lips. Proverbs 12:22. Anyone who sows discord among the brethren, Proverbs 16:19. A false witness who lies, Proverbs 6:19. The thoughts of the wicked, Proverbs 15:26. Now think about that. What does he hate? The thoughts of the wicked. You mean God knows what we're thinking? Yes. Proverbs 15:9. The ways of the wicked. So not only does he hate the wicked's thoughts, he hates the wicked's ways, the proud in heart, Proverbs 16.5. Those who justify the wicked, Proverbs 17.15. Those who condemn the just, Proverbs 17.15. Empty sacrifices, Isaiah 1.13. Feasts as, as Israel celebrated them. In other words, to celebrate the feasts that are outlined in the Bible in a wicked way with the wrong heart, robbery for burnt Offering idolatry, evil plans against your neighbors, false oaths. What's on the list? Esau. Actually, it says, Jacob, have I loved Esau? Have I hated? What else does God hate? Divorce, Malachi 2.14. The deed of the Nicolaitans, Revelation chapter 2, verse 6. That's that's all the ones I could come up with this afternoon. And then I saw myself on the list and I checked myself on the list and there I am on the list and there I am on the list. And then I reread the line. Behold, I'm against you. Oh, most haughty one. It says in verse 32, look what it says. The most proud shall stumble and fall and no one will raise him up. I will kindle a fire in his cities and I will devour all around him. There comes a point where the proud will fall and there's no one to pick them up. But here's what the Bible says for me and for you. We have an opportunity to turn from our pride and our selfishness and our wickedness. 
Andrew Murray wrote, pride or the loss of humility is the root of every sin and every evil. The prince of preachers Spurgeon said, oh, man, hate pride, flee from it, abhor it. Do not let it dwell inside of you. He also said. Pride is a stab at deity. It's an attack upon the undivided glory of God. Spurgeon likened pride to a sinner pulling a knife on God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine anything so crazy? You don't bring a knife to a deity fight. That's crazy talk. Pride deprives us of God's help. Empowering us to rely on our own strength. And so here's the solution. The solution is in humility to offer yourself. In brokenness. To the God of heaven who's able to forgive you. Who's able to break your pride. And rather than break your pride on the foolishness of your activities, you can allow your pride to be put to death on the cross of Calvary in the person of Jesus. And like Paul, you can say, I can consider myself dead. I'm I'm dead to sin, but alive to Christ. No wonder we're encouraged to abandon pride and we learn to break our wills on the gospel of Jesus. And think about what's said next in verse 33. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the children of Israel were oppressed along with the children of Judah. All who took them captive have held them fast. They have refused to let them go. Here's the idea. The Assyrians that took in Israel in 750 B.C. Babylon has taken the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem. Hundreds of years later. Here's what the Lord says. The captors have refused to release the captives. The oppressors won't let him go again. Why is that even important to you? Because sin sometimes takes us captive. And it won't let us go. Sin seizes us, places us in chains. Sin manipulates us. It ruins our life and it ruins our marriage and it ruins our church. It ruins. And so the Lord says in verse 34, look what it says. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will thoroughly plead their case that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. Look at how jam-packed that one little verse is. Their Redeemer is strong. Who is their Redeemer? It's the Lord God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, the self-existent God, the one who inhabits eternity, who knows the beginning from the end. The Lord has lots of titles, but maybe there's few titles that are more powerful than Redeemer. Redemption is at the heart of the cross and at, the, at, at salvation. Their Redeemer is strong. But what's also interesting is the word that's used in the Hebrew language. And it's one that many of you are familiar with. It's the Hebrew word goel. Their 
Goel is strong. Why is, again, why is this important? A Goel in the Hebrew culture was a kinsman who did what was necessary to help the family in times of need. And by the way, in the hierarchy of redemption, the Goel was first the brother, then the uncle, then the cousin, then the nearest living relative. Also, the Goel was responsible for avenging manslaughter, according to Numbers chapter 35, verse 12, or murder. The Goel was also called the avenger of blood, Goel Chadam, in Numbers 35, 19, and Deuteronomy 19, 6. So again, why is this important? Because Israel would need a kinsman. And remember God's promises. God is going to send the Jews back to Jerusalem. There's going to be a period between the time of the captivity to the return. And then 400 years of silence. One of the things that's really interesting to me is the number of prophecies that take place in the book of of the Bible. In Jeremiah and Isaiah. Babylon's going to rule Judah for 70 years. Jeremiah 25.11. Written 626 B.C., fulfilled 609 to 539 B.C. It says in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, the whole country will become a desolate wasteland. The nations that will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. When the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation. The land of the Babylonians and their guilt, declares the Lord. I will make it desolate forever. Babylon's gates are open to Cyrus. Isaiah 45, 1. Here in Jeremiah. Prophecy written 701. Fulfilled 539. Isaiah 45, 1. The prophet said that the gates of Babylon for Cyrus is going to open up. Babylon's kingdom is going to be overthrown permanently. Isaiah 13, 19. In Isaiah 13, 19, the prophet says that Babylon is going to be forever, fully, finally, permanently overthrown. It's never going to rise again to a meaningful empire. Babylon would be reduced to swampland, it says in Isaiah 14, 23. In Isaiah 14.23, the prophet said to Babylon, which had been a world power at two different times in history, that it would be brought to a humble and final end. It would be reduced to swampland. In Isaiah 14.23, it says, I'm going to turn her into a place for owls, into a swampland. I will sweep her with the broom of destruction. Why, why again is all of that stuff important? The judgment is going to take place. Israel is going to be redeemed. A solution for sin is going to be provided. They're going to need a Goel, a kinsman, redeemer, a Jew. Jesus was a Jew, born of a woman, born at the perfect time. Born under the law. God as redeemer figures heavily in the book of Isaiah. But only three times in the book of Jeremiah. And we've studied them all. Jeremiah 15.21. Jeremiah 31.11. And here. In Jeremiah 50 verse 34. A redeemer. Someone who can deliver you. 
from a captivity that you yourself cannot break free. And so the Lord promises to be that redeemer. And then in verse 35, look what it says. A sword is against the Chaldeans, says the Lord, against the inhabitants of Babylon and against her princes and her wise men. By the way, five times the Lord calls for a sword to smite the Babylonians. And the way that I want you to think about this is the prophet analyzes Babylon's defensive strengths, the population, the inhabitants, the princes, the wise men, the diviners, the warriors with their horses, chariots, foreign troops, foreign allies, treasures. In other words, the prophet looks at their defensive capabilities. Well, this is what they have going for them. I mean, they have a fairly large population and they have a lot of smart people on their side and they've got an overwhelming military and they've got unlimited resources. There's lots of reasons why you're never going to be free. And God's judgment is, I'm going to judge Babylon. Read it for yourself. I'm going to bring a sword against the inhabitants of Babylon. Their population doesn't matter. Against her princes, the royalty doesn't matter. Against her wise men, it doesn't matter what kind of intelligence sources that she has. Verse 36, a sword is against the soothsayers. They will be fools. A sword is against her mighty men. They will be dismayed. A sword against the soothsayers. They will be fools that... In the King James, it says liars. In another version, it says boasters. By the way, in the ancient world, soothsayers sometimes served as military advisors. The point being that all of the military strategies that will be brought to bear in order to try and keep the children of Israel captive will be destroyed. Again, what does this mean to you? There's a lot of reasons why the devil will whisper in your ear. The addiction is too hard. You're too deeply entrenched. There's all kinds of reasons why you can't obey God, why you can't serve God, why you'll never be able to pray like you should. You'll never be able to serve like you should. And here's part of the point of the passage that all of the opposition that you experience as a Christian is defeated because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual to the tearing down of all of the things that would seek to enslave you. And so this is why it says a sword is against their horses. That's transportation against their chariots. That's the military machine against all the mixed peoples who are in her midst. This is all of the foreigners who have joined forces with Babylon to keep you in bondage and they will become like women. No offense to you girls. In what way? We don't want to fight. Let's just do something else. That's what that means. A sword against her treasurers. They'll be robbed. In other words, all of the resources that she has in order to keep people in bondage will be destroyed. A drought is against her waters and they will be dried up for in the land of carved images. And they are insane with their idols. By the way, in the poem, there's a a play on words. 
It says a drought is against her waters. It's the Hebrew word koreb. Sword. It's the Hebrew word kereb. Koreb. Kereb. In the Hebrew language, the consonantal form is exactly the same. The Masoretes chose drought, bright, Moffat, the New English Bible, all follow the Syriac text and render this, a sword is against her waters. Is it a sword? Or is it a drought? Either way, here becomes the total point. God will use his resources in order to condemn and destroy the resources of Babylon. And by the way, the Babylonians were idol junkies, idols, imim. It literally means nothings. It could be translated terrors. When it says, for it is a land of carbon images and they are insane with their idols. The idea is they are made fools by their frights. Another translation could be they're mad for their boogeymen. They're like a child who likes to watch monster movies because they love to be frightened. You know what I heard? That there was a time in our culture when less than a hundred newspapers carried astrological information. Now there are some 1,700 newspapers and news outlets that carry astrology. And when a few would take it away, people would panic because unless they can read their horoscope, they're afraid to leave the house. That's the way superstitious people are. A drought will turn prosperous Babylon into a barren wasteland, a wilderness comparable to the wilderness of Sodom and Gomorrah. Think, think, Mojave Desert between Las Vegas and Barstow. Empty, empty, empty. Therefore the wild desert beasts shall be there with the jackals. The ostriches shall dwell there. It shall be inhabited no more forever. Nor shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. The picture is a picture not of just temporary devastation, but of total devastation. And this is why I'm here to tell you that this prophecy will probably take its full and final form. Sometime in the future. There's going to be a Middle Eastern war that will be devastating. That will eradicate. It's, it's going to be like a nuclear wasteland. In verse 40, as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord, so no one shall reside there, nor shall son of man dwell in it. The picture is one of catastrophic emptiness. And it will happen. And then it goes on with the conquest of Babylon. Behold, a people shall come from the north. It reiterates, and a great nation and many kings shall be raised up from the ends of the earth. This is the combined armies of Persia. They shall hold the bow and the lance. They are cruel. They shall show no mercy. Their voice shall roar like the sea. It's like a marching army. And you can hear this roar like the ocean hitting the, hitting the shore. They shall ride on horses set in array like a man for battle. Against you, O daughter of Babylon, the king of Babylon has heard the report about them and his hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of him. Pangs as if a woman in childbirth. The picture is 
the king of Babylon understands that the full and final judgment is about to take place. Someone used to sing, there sits the king of Babylon, many crowns upon his head, and he rules the nations. The king of Babylon, ultimately, is the Antichrist. Who sets himself in opposition, in rebellion, to all of the things of God. But guess what? There's going to come a climactic end to human history Look at verse 44. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the floodplain of the Jordan against the dwelling places of the strong, but I will make them suddenly run away from her. Ooh, what does this mean? Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the floodplain of the Jordan. Where is the floodplain of the Jordan, ladies and gentlemen? The floodplain of the Jordan is that strip of land that extends from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. And the Jordan connects those two bodies of water. And the valley that is in between them is the Jordanian floodplain. The picture is an army that, army that has its origin in Israel. And that moves east rapidly, dramatically, and with devastation. And look what it says. And who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her? For who is like me? Who will arraign me? And who is that shepherd who will withstand me? Who is like the God of heaven? Who will arraign me? That means who will bring God to court and then find him guilty? Who is the shepherd that can withstand God? Is there anyone who can change his mind? Is there anyone who can change the course of human history? Is there anyone who will make it possible that the wrath of God will be mitigated? There's one person, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is like me, Jesus. Who will arraign me? Jesus will stand in the court of heaven and say, Dad, you said that you would exonerate that person and forgive that person if they would trust me. Can you see the father going, not guilty by reason of Jesus? Verse 45, therefore, hear the counsel of the Lord. That he has taken against Babylon and his purposes that he has proposed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he will make their dwelling place desolate with them. He's going to fulfill the prophecy. Verse 46. At the noise of the taking of Babylon. The earth trembles. And the cry is heard among the nations. Why? Because if God is willing to judge that nation that stands in opposition to God, then every nation will be judged and cannot withstand the judgment of God.
This is what it means, by the way, in Matthew 24 and 25, when Jesus gives a picture of the future, of a separation of the sheep and the goats, of the nations. The goats to your left, no pun intended, sheep to the right, no political endorsement whatsoever, it's just a figure of speech. But the point is, God will fulfill the judgment. And guess what? There's still 64 more verses of judgment against Babylon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Oh, the time is going by quickly with such a light subject, Lord. But Lord, if ever there was a time to be thankful, it's now. If ever there was a time that we could be grateful that our sin and our pride and our wickedness can be forgiven, judged, the wrath of God poured on the person of Jesus and redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation because we too have a Redeemer. We have a Savior who's bought us out of the marketplace of sin. And he's purchased us with his own blood. So that we could have eternal life. And not just forgiveness now, but forgiveness forever. Not just life now, but life forever. And so again, Lord, we pray that you would awaken our hearts out of slumber. Lord, there's a time to sleep and there's a time to watch. And Lord, we want to watch because we know that our redemption is drawing near. In Jesus' name, amen.